0: And a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with my good friend and Inside Track co-host, Eb Wilkinson. Welcoming you to a special, glorious springtime edition of Inside Track. Thanks for tuning in today. It is another great Saturday in Tucson, Arizona. Hope you'll get out and enjoy the spring before summer arrives. I'll still be unpacking and working in my new garden uh,
1: this weekend. Eb, what's on your agenda? Well, I'll be teaching a CCW class, which is always good. Oh, I good. wish I was there with you. Uh, you know, that's always fun. That's always fun, number one. Number two, working on my house still, but the cabinets are great. Tammy's got her cabinets in. She's waiting for a little bit more. Uh, but, Bruce, they're beautiful. You guys did a that's great Corazon
0: job. Cabinets. four eight eight
1: two two six six. 488-2266. Ask for joy.
0: <laughs> I visited Payson yesterday and visited with my old friend and former AZ GOP chair and now Payson, Arizona mayor, Tom Morrissey. He is doing a great job governing, enjoying himself and making a difference. And this is the key point I want to make by demonstrating that practical conservative values do make sense for the whole of community. It's amazing the things that they're doing there, working with the uh, Forest Service uh, to have a a secondary escape plan in case of a a fire, forest fire, because they're completely surrounded by the the national forest. It's a big problem. Also working uh, with law enforcement officials on the drug problems that exist up in that area. Uh, meth is a huge problem uh, you wouldn't think it you know pace in arizona a really? uh, huge problem apparently because <clears throat> there aren't enough jobs and enough opportunity okay also look he's not an advertiser and he's not paying me to say any of this but if you're looking for a friendly place to enjoy a great meal super cocktails you should go see sh- what chef jonathan Landine. Is doing it, Jonathan's Cork. He's been doing it for years. Okay, he's over on the curve where Wilmot turns easterly. You know, into Tankaverde. We had a super meal there last night. The place was packed with tons of folks, and you could tell they were really, really enjoying their meals and having a great experience. Jonathan does not skimp. It took two people to polish off to polish off a very well priced. Big honk and slab of prime rib, and I enjoyed the best Caesar salad I've had in the past decade. Um, Service, very attentive as well. Uh, You should try them uh, again if you haven't been there recently. I haven't been there in about 20 years, and I was very impressed. We welcome your calls today at the Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus Hotline, 790-2040. We have another spectacular show for you today. In just a moment after our first break, we'll chat with Phil Kirpin from American Commitment. We'll talk about continuing lockdowns and where we go from here with the China virus. After the bottom of the hour, former U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, Chris Landau, will join us for the rest of the hour. He served as our ambassador to Mexico from 2019 until the end of 2020. He will give us the inside story about immigration issues and talk about what life is like for a U.S. diplomat. This portion of Inside Track is brought to you by my co-host, Eb Wilkinson and Gary Imus from Imus Wilkinson. Is it asset
1: management or investment? Ma- I, I keep <coughs> goofing that up. Well, it's Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. But if you say asset management, that's okay No, I've been, saying, okay with I've been me. saying investment management for,
0: for months, and I thought I heard in one of your commercials that it said asset management. Anyway, from I'm Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby step approach to your wealth management is designed so you will never have to solely depend upon socialist security. Eb manages family wealth for my sister, and he does a great job. Call Eb at 777 777- ch 1911 and help him do so for you also mr producer let's go ahead and take an early break when we return eb and i will talk to phil kirpin from american commitment stay tuned we will be right back iron and metal retail to inside track as an advertiser jamie kipper and her staff are conservation experts they sell round and square steel tubing metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays 8 a.m. to 4 30 p.m. and Saturdays 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street, Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices.
1: It's termite season. Hi, it's Nick. And bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Ah, for your life. Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com.
2: Ask not.
3: What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your
1: country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. I am uswilkinson.com. 777-1911. 777-1911.
0: Oh, we're back.
1: (laughs) That would be called dead air.
0: That was dead air. Sorry about that. Um, Okay, welcome back to Inside Track. This portion of today's show brought to you by my friends Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. I talked to Gary yesterday about a bunch of steel we need for a fence we plan to build at the new house. Everyone can find something for the home or ranch at Tucson Iron and Metal at super great prices. Check them out and see what they have to offer. Hey, and also don't forget that now that we're going into the spring and summer temps, you know, temperatures are rising. This is the time to get ahead of desert critters and pests. Call 886-3029. That's at Essential Pest Control for Eric Rudin and his great team to protect your home, business, and your kids plus your doggies. And not necessarily in that order uh they are two great locally owned family businesses that you can depend upon i do so should you well we've been trying to get a hold of our guest phil kirpin who normally is johnny on the spot uh, whenever he appears here and at other radio shows we're still trying him now i don't know maybe he's in the bathroom or something or taking a shower uh, we'll we'll figure it out um we're we want to talk with him about the lockdowns and the COVID restrictions that are still going on. Uh, we heard this week that um, uh, the public science official in Oregon is recommending that the face coverings continue indefinitely. indefinitely.
1: And how can they do that? Number one, there's no science behind it. None. Number two, it is harming our kids. It is. Number two, it's it's total control. It's the government trying to take total control over us and tell us what we can and cannot do it's no longer us being citizens it's us being subjects yeah and that's what we escaped from you know the i would love to go ahead and do a freedom of information act number 1 provide the peer review studies showing that the masks are effective against the coronavirus number 2 provide the peer reviewed studies that show that the six-foot separation is necessary to keep, you know, the coronavirus down. Because there is no science behind that, Bruce. It's frustrating. Well, it certainly is. And in in Oregon,
0: it's almost like a gulag there uh, today, and for no good reason. Um, I'm not sure we're going to get a hold of our guy, Phil Kirpin. Uh, so this may be a good time to go to uh, open phone, 790-2040. Ebb and I will continue
1: to talk about uh, <laughs> about the COVID lockdowns. Look, these... I'm finding more and more places are just ignoring yeah. the masks, yeah. to, to include restaurants. And yeah. they'll say, look, we're going to wear them, but you don't have to, and we're not going to do anything. I'm finding more and more stores the same way. I'm finding very few places that I need to wear a mask to go into. Uh, So
0: I went yesterday, I mentioned I I went to uh, Payson. And on the way there, you go through the Fort McDowell uh, Indian Reservation. And and they have, you know, the big casino, Wicopa. And there's a a gas station across the street with a C-store. And uh, I went in there. uh, They have all the mask-wearing signs as you walk in. No... I wasn't wearing a mask and nobody else was either. And nobody said a word. And of course, you know, on the Indian reservations there there have been significant issues sure. with COVID. Indians the Indian nation in this or the various Indian nation in this state, they're like eighty percent vaccinated at this point in wow. time. Wow. They took vaccinations very, very seriously because they were having huge problems because People are living in smaller, right. in smaller homes, several generations together—grandparents, you know, sons and daughters and grandchildren—all together in one place. And they took it seriously. They've been vaccinated. That's a great thing. But I thought it was interesting and, and actually refreshing that you could walk, walk into a C store, uh, whether you were going to buy, you know, a can of Coke. Oh, we don't drink Coke anymore. Right. Uh, Oh, no, you can't even have Aquafina water or or, uh, what's the other one? Um, DeSanti. DeSanti. Can't have those either. Um, But, you know, that you could walk into a C-store and and get yourself uh, a nice, you know, a nice drink or something um, and not have to wear uh, a mask. Uh, And really, nobody had masks on and nobody
1: was saying a damn thing. And yet in Michigan, where they're masked up, coronavirus is spiking through the roof. Yeah. The same with New York City. And you got Bill De Blasio saying, uh, "Okay, comrades, if you follow what I tell you, maybe you'll get some of your rights back." I mean, oh my God, what a bunch of BS! Where somebody feels they are so powerful that they can control.
0: Hey, we got Phil Kirpin on the line. Uh, <laughs> Phil, glad you glad you're joining Phil. us. How are you doing today?
3: I'm alright, you know, my uh my cell phone broke so I had to take it in to get fixed and uh, I got banned from Twitter today. So, but other than that I'm good. But <laughs> Nice. You know, wife, what did good you get job?
0: Uh, dude, what did you get banned from Twitter? What did you say? Are you ba- are I'm you a trying bad to figure kid? It out.
3: I don't know. It says there was it says there was uh, unusual activity. And then and, and then it won't let me back in. So, I don't know. Maybe they'll explain it to me. Like, maybe someone tried to hack me. Maybe they thought my tweets were unusual. I don't know.
0: Well, the may, maybe right the people at Twitter are trying to ban your opinion with respect to lockdowns being very costly.
3: Yeah, but you know, if they were going to do that, they would have done it a long time ago, <laughs> I think.
1: Maybe no, they I just found know. out it's about you. No, maybe they know who he is.
3: Possible. So anyway, guys, So I'm sorry. I missed your call. That's
0: okay. uh, No problem. Phil, talk to us about the impact uh, on on education. One of the real costs here with the COVID lockdowns is the impact on education for our children. I heard yesterday that tens of thousands of school age kids in Maricopa County alone have virtually disappeared they haven't been participating in any of the online classes. What are the long-term implications related to future success in life and for employment chances for these kids, for for this really a two-year blowout of their educational experience?
3: Well, you know, I think it's the biggest tragedy of this whole thing. Obviously, the virus itself is a tragedy. A lot of people died. Uh, I'm not going to minimize that, but um, you know, that that was nature. That was something that happened, I mean, unless the Chinese made it in a lab or something. It was probably nature. Uh, there's not a lot that you can do about that. But, you know, the educational harms, uh, we did that to ourselves. And we did it even though there was never any evidence that closing schools or masking kids or any of the weird stuff we've done would have any impact on the virus, and it has not had any impact on the virus spread. And, of course, you know, we ended up with the same virus harms we would have had anyway, uh, but now we've got these massive, massive educational harms, as well as the economic harms, everything else associated with lockdown. And in my view, uh, look, I hope we can dig every kid in the country out of the hole and uh, get them back on track. I, I You know, I, I, I try to be as optimistic as anyone, but I think realistically – You know, we're going to have a substantial percentage of kids that never catch up to where they were before this happened, and that means they're going to have lower lifetime income. It means they're more likely to end up in crime or in drugs than they otherwise would, and it means they're going to have uh, less happy, less productive, and shorter lives and you know we've got pretty good data on this it shows the difference in life expectancy between a high school graduate and a high school dropout is about five years right so wow. you know, this idea that oh we don't care about health because we want our kids in school it's like well no wait wait a right time actually gonna have an enormous health impact uh and and that's just the sort of the long term in the near term we've also got uh, a huge increase in pediatric overdose deaths Uh, you got kids that are now using drugs uh you know i mean in in, you know unprecedented numbers we've got all these uh suicides as well uh we don't really have the data on that yet but there have been a lot of stories about them and you know the the Pediatric mental health admissions, fortunately, very few of these kids actually, you know, die of an overdose or a suicide. But uh, we're seeing record numbers of kids admitted uh, to hospitals with mental health crisis. And, you know, that's a major problem in itself near term. And, you know, the crazy thing is that we have... Literally the mildest respiratory season for children ever recorded, ever in history, uh, because COVID crowded out flu. COVID is much less dangerous for kids than flu. And so, you know, all of the, normally you have a lot of pediatric respiratory issues in the winter. We had basically none this year. And so you had all (laughs) these empty pediatric wings of hospitals, and then they ended up using a lot of them for. Mental health overflow. Right. Um, because the kids were in crisis because they were being denied schools or, you know, when they were allowed to go being masked for eight hours at a time and all of this crazy stuff when, you know, kids were never at risk and there was never really any evidence that they were substantial spreaders either. And now we have this situation and, you know, your governor did the right thing lifting the mask mandate, but he, I think he should have gone further and banned masks.
1: Absolutely. And not left
3: it up to the individual school districts because now, you know, they don't know what to do. Now it sort of throws a football in their lap. And quite frankly, what, what are the masks even supposed to be for? If every teacher in the school has been offered a vaccine if they want them, and every parent at home has been offered a vaccine if they want them, and this is less dangerous for kids than the flu, who are we even trying to protect by subjecting kids to this? That's what I'm trying to figure out.
1: I read that there were only 2,000 documented flu cases this season in Arizona? No. No, Na- in the country. In that's the country. about right. Yeah, it's usually, and, and that's the. Um, and it's usually two to three hundred thousand.
3: And it, but, the, but the interesting thing is that's not because of school closures, It's not because of masks. It happened everywhere in the world where there was right. COVID, including Sweden, you know, including Brazil, and, you know, including Japan. And it's a really interesting thing. Uh, and yeah, I wish we had a better understanding of it than we do. But, you know, these viruses, they compete with each other on some level. Hmm. I don't know if it's at the host level or if it's something, uh, you know, we, you know I, I don't know the mechanism. I don't think anyone knows the mechanism, but it's pretty clear when you look at the data, that sometimes you have one really dominant virus and it sort of crowds out the other ones. And what we had, you know, basically everywhere that COVID was, and I don't want to say everywhere in the world, because there were a few places that there wasn't COVID uh, and they still had flu, Uh, but pretty much everywhere in the world that did have COVID, flu disappeared. And so it wasn't COVID in addition to flu, it was COVID instead of flu, which for kids was a good trade-off.
1: So kind of survival of the fittest. Yeah. As far as the flu versus COVID. So, so, Phil. Although
3: we are starting to say, I should say, you know, the the other human coronaviruses also disappeared for about a year. Uh, the rhinoviruses never went away. Uh, that's why you might have had a cold. It was probably from rhinovirus. But the the flu viruses. And the human coronaviruses, the other four coronaviruses, they totally disappeared until about a month ago. Flu is still gone, but the, the, uh, the H-coves, they call them, the human coronaviruses, those are back big time. And I actually take that as a very, very positive sign yeah. uh, that COVID is receding. It's, retreating. Right. it's making room for competitors <laughs> in the respiratory virus business, and I, you know, I think that's a really good sign that we're coming out of this.
1: Phil, so what are one? your thoughts on, here in Arizona— uh, you know, we're we're pretty much going without masks for the most part. Uh, coronavirus is down tremendously in Michigan, where they're still masked up heavily. It's up in New York. It's up because they're masked heavily. Uh, what do you make of that?
3: Uh, well, they're, they Michigan and New York both peaked about ten or twelve days ago, so they're they're still higher than you are, but they're not rising. They're now falling. Okay. And you know, the the interesting thing to me is they peaked at. Almost the exact same day that they peaked a year ago in the spring, despite, you know, the hard lockdown a year ago, sort of softer mask and that kind of stuff this year. Uh, you know, just but almost to the day we had the same peak and they were much lower this time, of course, because, you know, last year we had massive numbers of deaths in uh, nursing homes and this year uh, almost none, because every one of them was vaccinated. Uh, but the day it came at the same time. And so what I would take that to mean, and maybe it won't go this way, but what I would take that to mean is that, uh, you know, the masks and the distancing and the shutdown and the lockdown, and the school closures have almost no impact at all. But there is some seasonal stimulus, whether it's uh, temperature and humidity or whether it's solar radiation. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think we really know what the seasonal stimulus is, but based on with what we've seen sort of with last year, repeating this year, in the northern states, I would expect that southern states are going to see it again in the summer, the same as they did last year, unless it's prevented by really widespread vaccination. But, you know, as long as the seniors have been vaccinated or had you know prior exposure from already having the disease, I just we're not going to see high levels of hospitalization and deaths again. But we will see those case numbers go up again. And it's going to be pretty important for those southern governors not to panic and do stupid things that are costly and damaging. Uh, but we should have learned by now actually make no difference for stopping. In the
0: virus. So to, to wrap up, we're kind of, we, we got you a little late and, and we got another guest waiting here, Phil. Um, I apologize. Um, no, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. We're, we'll get you, we're, you're going to be back on real soon. Uh, why do you think it is so seductive for unelected bureaucrats like the so-called science director in Oregon uh, to announce a rule that might be needed for
3: permanently
0: keeping mask requirements in place?
3: Well, you know, I think a lot of these politicians and public health officials, which are religious politicians of a slightly different stripe, are scared to death that if they lift the restrictions and lift the masks and nothing happens, people will say, hey, wait a second, what did you do that to us for all that time? It was for nothing. And so they, they're sort of scared. They're scared of that. And uh, they want to kind of keep these things on as long as possible so they can act as if they work.
0: So in the age of the Biden-Harris malarkey government, what is the answer to lockdowns and mask wearing mandates? Where, where, what is your recommendation? Is where do we go from I hope, here?
3: I hope the answer is never again. And uh, obviously, a lot of states have moved away from that stuff. I hope that uh, you know if they do have cases return. They don't uh, make the mistake of doing those things again. We have very, very good treatments now, especially the monoclonal antibodies. They reduce hospitalization risk about 70 to 85 percent. If someone in a high-risk group gets this disease now, it's extremely treatable, and we don't need to act like this is some catastrophic end-of-the-world situation. Uh, Between that and the fact that we're pretty close to where anyone in the country who wants a vaccine can get one, I think we need to say, hey, everything's back to normal. People can decide what they're comfortable with risk-wise, but we're not going to put restrictions on society-wide.
0: Phil, one last question before we let you go. Vaccinations. We talked about it a second ago. MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston now forcing their staff to vax up. Um, Are we going to see more of that in in the marketplace, particularly in the medical uh, arena, do you think?
3: You know, I really hope not, um, because my view is that the more heavy-handed we are, the more some people are just going to backlash against it, and you're just going to create harder lines and divisions in society when we should be sort of coming out of this, and we should all be happy, and we should have that big relief rally of of the whole country. And, you know, my view is... You know, it's basically a no-brainer. If you're over age 65, you should probably get it uh, because of how severe the virus is uh, as an alternative. If you get down to 50, you know, you should probably get it. If you get down to 40 or 30, well, I mean, it, you're probably so low-risk either way, it doesn't make much difference. And, you know, for, for us to try to browbeat young people into getting a vaccine for a disease that's just not very dangerous for them, I think is uh, counterproductive in my view. Make the risk known. Explain to them, you know, they're very, very, very low risks for you with the vaccine. And They're very, very low risks uh, with the disease. You know, make your decision. And so I think for younger people, there's no reason to force the issue. For older people, you know, most of them are going to choose it, I think, if you lay out what the risks are. And you know, I would not be so heavy-handed about it. And I would not try to limit societal reopening based on some percentage of people taking it. To me, it's, is it available to the people who want it? And if it is, uh, we should move forward.
0: Phil Kirpin, thanks very much. American Commitment, great organization. Uh, Go online and look and see the various ways that American Commitment is protecting and defending uh, freedom and liberty in this country. Um, We will have you back on real soon, Uh, Phil. You are a great resource for us. Okay, producer Tom, let's How's go going? to our Thanks, you, Phil. You about, let's go to our bottom of the hour break when we return. Former U.S. Ambassador to Mexico, Chris Landau, will join us. You're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned, Eb and I will be right back. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What are the kind of customers do you have
2: So our biggest customers are actually like ranchers and people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So... Uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material what they're making bringing it back and so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them so i think that's really our niche market we'll sell whatever you need
0: tucson iron and metal surplus call 209-1579 stop by the yard 701 east 36th street open monday through saturday
1: it's termite season Bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Ah, I'm for your life. Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886 3029. That's 886 3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com. Wilkinson dot 777-1911. That's 777-1911.
0: Welcome back to Inside Track. Eb's here. Bruce is here hitting the mark, unlike just a few minutes before. Before we get to our next guest, diplomat and former U.S. Ambassador Chris Landau, do you have a home improvement project you want to get going, but you're worried if you can afford the luxury you deserve? Corazon Cabinets sells top quality cabinets by JK, Legacy, and Conestoga. Visit the Corazon crew at their new showroom located at 4700 South Park. Meet Joy, Allie, and David to see their fabulous collection and let them plan the kitchen or bath of your dreams. Janie and I have just placed an order for our new kitchen. Let me tell you a secret. The price for the kitchen was so reasonable, we went ahead and decided to add our master bath and our uh, other um, uh, bathroom as well. This is a great company to work with on beautifying your home in 2021. Do it just like I did, just like Eb and And Tam- let me tell you a secret. Tammy went and added her bathroom and master oh, is, bathroom it, as well right after the kitchen. Isn't that funny? Okay, Corazon Cabinets, luxury <laughs> you can afford. Eb and I are very pleased to introduce our special guest for the rest of the show today, Ambassador Chris Landau. Chris served as the U.S. Ambassador <laughs> from 2019 through the end of 2020 uh, to Mexico during one of the most interesting periods in U.S.-Mexican relations. Before coming an ambassador... Uh, He uh, practiced law for over 30 years and clerked not just for one U.S. Supreme Court justice, but two of them, Clarence Thomas as well as Antonin Scalia. That doesn't happen very often. President Trump thought so much of Chris's legal skills, he named him as one of his potential U.S. Supreme Court nominees. He is the son of a career diplomat, graduated first in his class at Harvard, has written extensively, and has published an important white paper on Venezuela. He is fluent in Spanish. And and French, I met Chris and his wife and daughter when they were in Tucson recently. Welcome to Inside Track, Ambassador.
4: It's a pleasure to be with you, Bruce. Uh, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, we. And nice we, to meet you, Eb, and to talk to your listeners. Thank yeah. you.
0: Yeah, Eb, Eb's my better half here at, at the show. <laughs> oh, great. Hey, hey, Chris, describe what you thought when the president nominated you to serve as our ambassador to the largest diplomatic mission in the entire world, that's in Mexico City, about the difficult process of getting Senate confirmation during such a contested period between Republicans and Democrats uh, who worked to delay or torpedo so many nominations. What, What was going through your brain at that time?
4: Well, I was very honored, of course, uh, Bruce, that he, uh, that he thought of me for this challenging assignment, and particularly for President Trump, as folks know, Mexico was a big priority. He wanted to bring our foreign policy closer to home and not focus so much on remote parts of the world, uh, while we were ignoring what was going on, uh, right next door to us. So it was a big, uh, is a big challenge, uh, and I was very pleased, and I was somewhat emotional because my father was an ambassador. Uh, in different countries as I was growing up. He's a man I really admired. Uh, Much to my chagrin, he uh, passed away uh, the week the White House uh, selected me as the nominee for Mexico. So he knew it was a possibility, but he he died at 98, uh, Hmm. just as it was uh, coming to fruition. And there were many times in the job, and I wish I could have called him up for advice or counsel. He was a very wise man. Um, but, uh, you know, I think over the years, at least he gave me a good idea as to what a good ambassador does and, uh, how to go about that kind of a job. And, you know, I think president Trump had a very clear, uh, vision of, uh, the relationship with Mexico. And, and so I was, uh, very honored to go and and be the person to implement it.
0: Well, I, I know that your father had passed before he saw you sworn in as U.S. ambassador, and, and I'm, I'm sorry for your loss and for, your, for the rest of your family. Uh, can, can you share, because you talked about his advice that you had taken during his lifetime, what do you think the most valuable advice or lesson um, he may have given you earlier in life that helped you become a successful diplomat and a success in your assignment in Mexico City?
4: Well, look, I think I owe everything in my life to my parents. I mean, I think they've always tried to bring me up right and to respect other people and, and treat them right. I mean, that is the essence of diplomacy is really trying to understand someone else's point of view, trying to be persuasive to them by identifying common ground with them, letting them know that you respect them and, and, uh, you, you know, you, you want to have a good relationship. Um, you know my, my father was a very inspirational guy for me. He uh, fled Austria as a teenager in the 1930s when Hitler came in and uh, wasn't able to get into the United States. We had very restrictive immigration quotas in those days. So he went to South America, to Colombia, mm. and he got his parents out. Uh, and uh, eventually, after a few years, managed to make his way to the United States when he got a job with the Otis Elevator Company. So he was an immigrant and who really... Uh, made it here and and, uh, joined the Foreign Service and then had the honor of representing our country abroad. And I was just always really inspired by his life story and very grateful to the United States for the opportunities that it gave my family. And I always had a sense, even though I was a successful lawyer in private practice, that I wanted to do some government service and have a chance to uh, give back to our country and you know it's a very special uh thing when you've grown up uh, in another country it gives you an understanding of other cultures i learned spanish as a kid and so i still speak it without an accent and i think that was uh, that allowed me to be effective as an ambassador to mexico because i could speak to the mexicans in their own language i knew some of their culture even from when i was growing up in latin america and they liked that. I think they liked somebody who they could tell, uh, you know, understood them and and uh, was, you know, always trying to uh, get to know their country better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that allowed me to be more effective as a as a diplomat, just uh, getting out and and showing my appreciation for their co- for their country.
0: You know, you and I share uh, friendships with some other U.S. ambassadors who were appointed during the Trump administration, and um, I I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask the question anyway. I think our listeners would be interested in knowing. Um, What they've told me uh, was that their job wasn't to hang around with the embassy uh, crowd as much as it was to really reach out into the country that they were uh, uh, assigned to and bringing part of American uh, exceptionalism, American thinking and thoughts, and trying to build relationships uh, in the country that they uh, were, were posted at. Did you find yourself in the same sort of a, of a mindset yourself on that?
4: Absolutely. I mean, as an ambassador, you have to wear many hats. And your most important role, obviously, is to represent the interests of the United States in the foreign country. And I think you do that most effectively by really engaging with the people of of that country. Uh, I think our new technologies now have opened up a lot of new ways to do the job. I was very active, for instance, on social media. Uh, When I got to Mexico, I inherited the ambassador's uh, official Twitter account, which at that point had about 25,000 followers. Uh, By the time I left, a year and a half later, uh, we had over a quarter of a million. We had about 280,000 in that account. You're a diplomatic rock star. Well, I mean, it was fun. I mean, you know, and I think people appreciated whenever I went around the country, I would, you know, talk about the food I was eating and the the people I met and the places I saw. And I think, you know, people are interested in seeing their own country through the eyes of a foreigner. Hmm. And I think it let them understand that I was, Again, very respectful of their culture. I I learned a lot about their history. And I think that just set a nice uh, tone that I wasn't coming as an antagonist. I was coming as somebody who was trying to find win-win solutions to the challenges facing our two countries. And, you know, I think, you know, those kinds of things, those kind of public diplomacy, you know, helps to uh, break down barriers. But, you know, you also are the head of a mission. And as you said at the top of the show, uh, the diplomatic mission in Mexico is the U.S.'s largest uh, diplomatic mission in the world. It's the embassy in Mexico City, uh, nine consulates general, five along the border, including one not too far from you in uh, Nogales, uh, Sonora, and another one in Hermosillo, Sonora, uh, and uh, nine more consular agencies. So it's about 3,000 people that work in that mission. And as ambassador, you're also the head of the mission. So that's another hat you have to wear and you have to keep up morale and kind of keep things moving, which certainly got complicated, as you can imagine, uh, during the pandemic in particular. Uh, We just had to keep our services going because, you know, consular affairs kept coming up. People would get sick or they would have they would need visas. And, you know, that got to be a challenge as well. So. You know it's one of those one of the things I liked about the job was that it was challenging in the sense that you just had to appeal to different audiences uh, and you know but that's what that's what made it interesting
1: Chris Ed has a question for you yeah Chris uh when you're traveling around the country how much security do you have to have and how do you have the ability uh, maintain the ability to interact with the locals while having that security
4: Challenge to be honest with you, so uh, I usually had eight people with me at a time a a uh, advanced car that would go ahead and kind of scout out where I was going to go, and I would travel in a vehicle with the driver and a bodyguard, and then we had a follow up car with four um, uh, four more security folks so you know I, I typically when I went around had at least uh, four people around me at all times. you know the truth is. Um, you just, it, it kind of becomes like white noise. I mean, these people are professional and they keep their distance. And so, you know, I did a lot of just traveling around, uh, within Mexico City and around the country and, and, you know, fortunately never had any incidents. Uh, but again, they, they are very well trained and they know how to kind of let me have a certain distance. So if I would go to, let's say, an open-air market, you know, they wouldn't be within arm's reach of me. They would kind of, um, you know, stay away and, and, you know, you just get used to it. It's one of the things that uh, is...
1: I think we just lost
4: Chris. <laughs> ...job, which, you know, part of which is to go out, uh, get out and about, and uh, so, you know, it's a challenge, but, uh, but you got to make it work.
0: Chris, before COVID struck, we had great success with the USMCA. That's the U.S.-Mexico-Canada-America trade agreement. How much of a role did the U.S. mission in Mexico have either inside our trade representatives work or around his team supporting with the, with the Mexican government and, uh, and industrial leaders there while, while the negotiations were going on?
4: You are certainly right, Bruce, that the, uh, the, those negotiations were handled primarily by the, uh, U.S. trade representative in Washington. Uh, you know, he was the, he and his team were the main negotiators. The Mexicans had their own negotiators, and that was where most of the heavy lifting took place. We, in the embassy in Mexico, provided support issues. You know, if there were, um, you know, challenges that were coming up in the negotiations. We would go and talk to relevant people in the Mexican government. Uh, when congressmen came down. Uh, they, you know, we had a congressional delegation from the uh, House Ways and Means Committee during my tenure, and I took them to the presidential palace, and they had a discussion with the president of Mexico about some of their concerns about the treaty. They wanted to get some assurances from him directly, and so we facilitated that. So I'd say we had a role. It was more of a supporting role than a starring role in getting that uh, through. But, uh, you know, it's really a, a great accomplishment, uh, frankly, that even though both President Trump and President López Obrador in Mexico were very critical of NAFTA, the original free trade agreement, uh, instead of scrapping it, they both came around to uh, reforming it and bringing it up to date and making it a more even playing field. Uh, and I think it's, it's a very healthy thing for both countries uh, that we now, and hopefully for at least another generation, uh, are going to continue to have this very extensive commercial relationship, which I think should be good for Tucson and for, for Arizona as U.S.-Mexico trade continues to grow.
0: Ambassador, what do you think the long-term impact of USMCA can be? And, and I would say, what are your hopes that the Biden team is, is carrying the ball on USMCA going forward?
4: Well, look, I am concerned about USMCA because it goes where no trade treaty has ever gone before in terms of addressing subjects like labor conditions and environmental conditions. And, you know, I think there's always a uh, danger that uh, something a treaty like this can complicate relations between countries if it is used by one country to try to impose its, its vision of how things should be on the other country. I mean, the U.S. and Mexico are both sovereign countries, as is Canada, the third signatory, uh, you know, and, and Mexico is, uh, has certain, environmental and labor commitments. Uh, I am certainly hoping that the treaty doesn't lead to more friction in our relationship on some of those areas. Uh, And I hope that it is implemented in good faith by people on all sides, which I, I have no reason to think it won't. But I'll tell you one thing that whenever anybody, any American company or American interest group was unhappy with something that the Mexican government was doing, Domestically, they would run to the embassy and says, "Well, this law or this regulation is a violation of the new treaty." And I would say, "Well, show me. I'm a lawyer. Tell me what provision it violates." And they would really not be able to point to anything, and they would just say, "Well, it violates the spirit of the treaty." I said, "Well, look, you got to do a little better than that." Uh, so, you know, I think uh, the, the treaty doesn't, you know, tell Mexico how to govern itself. It's still a democratic country, uh, but I think it'll be helpful in hopefully. Uh, you know, expanding our commercial relationship.
0: So we have about ten minutes left, and before we get to immigration and trade, uh, let me just uh, hark back to March of 2020. Um, COVID hits the world, and life as we knew it at the time changed dramatically. Uh, tell our listeners how the virus affected life for the huge diplomatic mission you oversaw in Mexico City, and 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 how you worked in your job and got your team uh, working and, and avoiding health circumstances and so on. Um, tell us about that, because this, I, I think for, for the other uh, ambassadors that I've talked with, this was maybe the, the, the most unusual thing that happened on their watch.
4: Oh, there's no question about it, Bruce. I think it's probably the most unusual thing that's happened in my life. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, probably for anybody. I mean, I, I can't think of any other event in my life, certainly, that has, affected every single person and turned all of our lives upside down. Suddenly, you know, we can't send our kids to school, we can't go to work, we can't go to church. Uh, you know, so so you know it, it, obviously it, it, it affected our lives you know, in the us. mission in Mexico very dramatically and very suddenly, uh, you know, we really had just kind of seen some stories in the newspapers about this going into the end of February, early March, in in, in January. I remember there were some stories reported in Mexico about some Mexicans who were stranded in Wuhan in China where there was already a lockdown. And I was trying to help the Mexicans uh, evacuate their people as we were evacuating ours. But you know, there was no sense that we would find ourselves in that same situation in, in a month. Uh, and, you know, it, it came rather suddenly in the middle of March when the U.S. Uh, went into lockdown. I remember my family and I were uh, out for a long weekend in Puebla, which is a beautiful town about, I don't know, a couple hours from Mexico City. Uh, and I posted some of that on social media, and I started to get some criticism from abroad, like, well, what are you doing out and about? You should be in lockdown. At this point, there were maybe 10 cases or fewer in the entire nation of Mexico. Uh, but I, you know, we came back to the embassy in Mexico City. I talked to my team, and things were shutting down in Washington, So we made the decision to go to a sharply reduced staffing level at the embassy. Again, nobody really knew the nature of this or, you know, how contagious it was, how dangerous it was. And we thought at the time that this was going to be flattening the curve. Remember, it was supposed to be, you know, two or three. Fifteen days. Yeah, 15 (laughs) days. Right. Right. So, you know, (laughs) I never imagined that it would be a year. Uh, I mean, it was just inconceivable. And so anyway, you know, we went to fairly reduced staffing. You know, there are certain things, there are certain essential services that you have to provide. It's, it's our job, uh, you know, like consular support if an American citizen is in danger or dies abroad or you know, needs an emergency visa because a family member uh, is, is ill or something like that. Um, and, and one of the most important things actually is I remember that first day when we went down to maybe about 10 to 15 percent staffing mission wide in, in, I think this was March 18th. Um, I got a call from the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue from Washington, and he said, look, the agricultural community of the United States is freaking out because they hear that the mission in Mexico is shutting down and, You know, we need the um, the guest worker permits, the H-2A visas for temporary agricultural workers that are the basis for our nation's food supply. I said, you know something? Second, Mr. Secretary, I read you loud and clear. I agree with you. That is a national security issue, and we will make sure that this mission carries out its part to to have that process continue smoothly. And we did. I'm very proud of our team. I mean, all throughout the pandemic, we had – know groups coming in and they processed all those visas and i'm happy to say there was never a disruption in our country's food supply or in the supply of these uh critical agricultural workers but you know it certainly became a challenge as a diplomat your job is to go out and about and meet people and uh you know i was holed up at home like everybody else uh for you know for a few months in there you know april you know march april may uh you know into june and then you know, I started venturing out over the summer um, in July. My staff was very much against it. If Mr. Ambassador are making a terrible, grave mistake, I said, look, I have been urging uh, companies to reopen with appropriate safety protocols. Because one of the critical points is we have such intensive commercial relationships with Mexico and, and economic ties that a lot of the supply chains are, go across the border. I guess people in Arizona know this. So a lot of companies that are making things in the States have components that come from Mexico. So one of the big challenges is we shut down our um, factories for a while, some of them, except for the non-essential. So did Mexico. But we had different definitions of what was essential. And so some of the places that were allowed to be open here uh, had to get components from Mexico. And some of those places were shut down. So we managed to make it work. No place, as far no business, as far as I know, was forced to shut down in the United States for lack of parts from Mexico. But they were pretty hairy days in there to try to uh, align our uh, priorities. So you know, it was a challenge, just like it was for everybody.
0: Chris, Uh, I'm Chris. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you. Eb has a quick question. We're we're running (laughs) short on time. Uh, So Eb, go ahead with your um, question.
1: I actually uh, have a second home in Mexico. I have a uh, permanent uh, visa for Mexico terrific as well as a mexican driver's license which helps out when i get pulled over down there
4: um, yeah what what part of mexico ed
1: uh, puerto penasco
4: oh nice yeah i think that's uh kind of Arizona's beach town
1: it is i can leave friday at four and be having dinner and drinks at eight o'clock anyway uh when the pandemic hit it just totally decimated puerto penasco
4: yeah these people yeah.
1: were hurting now we were still able to go down there a little bit but for you know several months there was no place to go yeah, what what does somebody like you, the ambassador, do to help these small communities?
4: Well, I have to say, one of the most frustrating parts of the job for me was dealing with the big bureaucracies on both sides of the border, in our own government and on the Mexican, uh, in the Mexican government as well. Uh, as as you may know, we kept the U.S.-Mexico border open to uh, commercial traffic but we shut down the border to the land border for non-essential travel, which is family visits, all that kind of stuff, both ways. The Mexicans really didn't enforce that very much, so they would tend to let American citizens in and out. It sounds like you experienced that. Yes. But technically, we had an agreement both ways. It was a reciprocal agreement that it was supposed to be limited to essential travel only. And I think to this day... There is, uh, you know, very serious economic devastation. I saw some of it in Nogales when I was there a few weeks ago of a lot of businesses that are boarded up because, you know, the the Mexicans with visas are still not allowed to come over to go shopping, to visit relatives. I think this is something that the United States and Mexico have got to reevaluate opening up the border to non-essential travel, again, to to people who have visas, who can legally go back and forth. uh, And... You know, I, I think it is it is at this point way overdone to have that closed still, and it, it's causing very serious pain on both sides of the border. And it's not only economic pain, as as you know, a lot of families straddle the border, and so there are you know grandchildren who haven't seen their grandparents, and vice versa. Absolutely, for more than a year now, and these communities are very integrated, these border communities. So, you know, I was certainly a voice in the U.S. government for trying to, uh, you know, let's say tailor the border closures more to the health situation and not just have a one-size-fits-all policy from you know, San Diego and Tijuana on the Pacific all the way to Brownsville and Matamoros on the Gulf of Mexico. Unfortunately, you know that is still in place, and, but I'd like to see that change. And I'm going to be, I think, writing about that because I think particularly Arizonans, people from the border need to be speaking up. Their senators have to be calling the government officials and saying, it's time to start opening it up, at least where health conditions uh, warrant. There's no reason that it should be shut the whole way down across.
0: Chris, the bad news is we're up against it. We're going to have to close, close down for today. The good news is I've, I've already prepared a whole bunch of other questions for you. Uh, can we get you back on the show maybe either next week or the week after, depending upon your schedule, to finish up? Because there's loads of stuff that we never got to.
4: I know, you know, I'm such a big talker, Bruce, you know, that that I'm afraid I went on and on. I'm enjoying this so much. It's great to be with you. It's just it's a chat between
0: friends here and and, it is and 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 I appreciate
4: enjoying it. Yeah, I appreciate Uh, your candor. Listen, I would I would love to be back. So just let's set up a time, and uh, I'd I'd love to come back and, and continue this conversation some other time. All right, That's so great, Chris. You for Thank you. Me.
0: Insiders, we hope you enjoyed today's chat with Ambassador Chris Lando, and earlier with Hill Kirpin from American Commitment. We have another great show for you next week with Greg Ayers from Gap Ministries, who will join us to talk about their great plans to find a new home for their ministry uh, that will help uh, children uh, here in uh, southern Arizona. The great success as they've enjoyed for many years. And we'll also talk to author of Lincoln's Mentors, Michael Gerhart. Until next Saturday, this is Bruce Ash and... At Wilkinson. Wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. And thanks to Chris. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus.
2: A lot of the the cities and counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrap yard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department, where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap.
0: Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Ask not
1: what your country
3: can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country.
1: Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. -Wilkinson I-M-U-S-Wilkinson.com. 777-1911. 777-1911.